Okay, well, you can turn back to the book of Isaiah. How, how many of you have been with me throughout the whole study of Isaiah? I mean, I mean, not that you can't miss a Sunday, but you've basically been here from the beginning. Okay. Um, I don't know if you get like this. You know, sometimes you know, this is a long book, and it's easy to kind of get weighed down by the details and, and the length. Um, and, and certainly I've had moments where I have to remind myself, um, you know, what is this book about and, and where are we in it? But uh, I find myself coming to the end of a study a little bit sad, you know. Um, uh, Isaiah has become a, a bit of a friend along the way. And, and yet he is, he is going to press through the finish line here. We're, we're going to see him sprint for the tape. And um, you, will, you will see with me um, just this picture that he gives us as he concludes his prophecy. Um, so let me start the PowerPoint here so everybody can see. Let's try that. Okay, we got that, Drew. Hey, look at that. Through the wonders of modern technology, uh, teaching the Bible in 2020 has been a little bit more, a little bit different. So, okay, so there we go. Um, so the title of our message today is "Rank Recompense Accomplished" and a final prayer. Th- this is what we've been waiting for. This is one of the things that Isaiah has been saying is coming. You'll remember from the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, what, what causes Isaiah to open his mouth as God calls him to the task is the flagrant, rebellious injustice, not just in an ungodly world, but amongst God's very people. And Isaiah has told us chapter after chapter, verse after verse, that there is coming a day when God will say, enough. God is going to step on the stage in history one day. He's going to draw a line in the sand and say, no more. I will not let sin and wickedness continue. I will not let people continue to suffer. I will not let those continue to be taken advantage of. And every wicked manifestation in this life, God will say, done. And he will put it all back the way he intended it to be. And so after chapter after chapter after chapter of Isaiah saying that day is coming, and of course along the way we've heard how he's going to do that, right? How is he going to bring all this to a close? How is he going to recreate the world and, and restore it and put it back? And we, and we find that God's not just going to do that by snapping his fingers one day, but through the agency of a servant, and uh, we, we've gotten to know a little bit about this servant, this, this, this agent that God will dispatch on his own behalf. And, and, of course, last week we learned a new name for him. Does anybody remember the name of the agent who's kind of come and do all of this? He's been called the servant uh, several times, and he has some other titles. But what's, what's the name we saw last time? Does anybody remember? Don't let me down. Come on. <laughs> What's that? The anointed one. That's right. And an anointed one. We, we don't usually talk about Jesus as the anointed one, but there are two other words that we often use to describe Jesus that mean the same thing. And, and I, I mentioned this last time, but, but let's connect some dots here, okay? Um, Ruth? Christ and Messiah. Okay. Christ and Messiah 
come from the Greek and Hebrew words for anointed one. Okay, Messiah derives from the Hebrew word for anointed one, and Christ derives its uh, name from the Greek word for anointed one. So really, Messiah, Christ, anointed one are all the same thing. All, they mean the same thing, and, and really they, they come from the same family of, of words. Okay, So that, that's what we're talking about, is this, this Messiah, this anointed one is going to come, and he is the one to put all things back together. And along the way... God has promised that he will restore his people and bring about again the end of the brokenness. And, and I, I feel like I say this almost every week, but I'm going to say it again at the risk of being redundant. Are you weary of the brokenness and sin and suffering and injustice and wrong that characterizes this world? I mean, do you just get weary about that? Okay, if you're like me and you get weary like that, this is why we need Mr. Isaiah, because Isaiah is saying, hang in there. Hang in there. There's coming a day. But what did David say in Psalm 27? Wait for the Lord, right? We, we wait. He said it. He's going to do it. We just need to hang in there and remember that God will do this one day. And we're going to turn the page today. You ready for this? After, after 62 chapters of telling us this is going to come, he's going to show us how God's going to do this. Okay, so look with me at chapter 63, chapter 63, oh, and, well, let's do this. Uh, Chapter 63, verse 1, actually, hold that for a second, I want to review just a couple of things real quick. I forgot about the Isaiah funnel. You want to know about the Isaiah funnel, right? You're looking at me like, what's the Isaiah funnel? The Isaiah funnel is this, there is a certainty of future justice, right? That's what he's been saying over and over and over, that justice is coming. The rampant injustice in the world is, um, uh, is, is coming to an end as God brings about future justice. And the promise of redemption and the hope and restoration of Israel, okay, that, that's kind of the themes that we're talking about, and the agency of the one who will accomplish these things, the servant, the king, the anointed one, okay, those are sort of the themes that we've seen coming together. And, and as Isaiah is bringing the book to a close, it's like a funnel, he, he, he's going from very broad and all these little themes, and then now it's, it's coming down with a, a, a narrowed focus, and he's going to say, watch this. Watch how this comes together. Okay, It's funneling down to this final picture where Isaiah, before Isaiah concludes his ministry, he's going to give us a glimpse of the future where God actually does all these things that Isaiah has been saying that he will do. Okay. Now, in the immediate context, we saw this last time in Isaiah 62, verse 11, Isaiah called the people to watch for a coming salvation through the anointed one. Do you remember that? Look at chapter 62, verse 11 again. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, okay. So he's saying it's coming, right? There, there, the, the salvation is coming, and it's coming as we learned in chapter sixty-one, verse one, through a person called the Anointed One, who we find out is the same person as the servant, the same person as the king. Now look at this, Isaiah sixty-two, verse six. Just back up a little bit. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen, and all day and all night they will never keep silent. You remember this from last week? God says, I've given you these men called watchmen and they are going to proclaim the promises of what God is going to do until the day he comes. Because like you, 
the Israelites were forgetful. Do you ever forget things that God tells you and you freak out and you get all anxious and all, and it's like, wait a minute, why am I doing this when God has told me how things are going to happen, right? So these watchmen, which we come to find are the prophets, are the ones that proclaim the truths of what God's going to do in the future so that the people don't forget, that they'll remember these things, okay? And now, and now, like I said, after reminding, reminding, and reminding, the watchmen are proclaiming, Isaiah says this coming salvation is, is imminent through the anointed one. Isaiah looks ahead to the arrival of this anointed one. We're going to see in chapter 63 the arrival, the coming of this anointed one, the servant who is going to finally bring justice and restoration and redemption. Uh, look at now, 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 look at chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Okay, so here he comes, right? And you can, you can picture it, right? The watchmen are on the wall and they're proclaiming to the people, God's, God's servant is coming, don't lose heart, restoration, redemption is coming, right? And they're, they're saying it over and over and over and they're on the wall and what are they doing? They're watching for this person to come, right? And, and, and here he is, they see him in the distance. And they can see his garments glowing in the sun and, and they get excited about that. And they see here, he's majestic in his apparel. He's marching with greatness and strength. He, he's, he's not, you know, stumbling in as a defeated enemy. He's marching in as a victor is the picture here. Now you say, what's up with Edom? Remember, Edom, uh, was a region, uh, that that uh, became one of the uh, the region of Israel's enemies. So Edom throughout the Bible is usually an enemy, right? And, and Basra is just the capital city there. So so the picture here is that this this figure, this agent of God, is coming. You know, his garments are glistening in the sun. He's marching in as a victor, and he's coming from a region of Israel's what? Their enemies, right? So so the idea is he's coming having defeated. Israel's enemies. That's the picture here, okay? So let's pick it up now in your notes. We're going to call this the recompense of the red-stained redeemer. The recompense of the red-stained redeemer. And you'll see why in just a moment. Who is this who comes? Remember, Basra is the capital city. Edom represents the ungodly nations, Israel's enemies. His apparel, his march, his strength. He comes in. And as he gets a little bit... And I don't know... Forgive me. Um, you guys ever seen a Western... You know, Western, or, or maybe one of those, my, my mom used to call them, you know, blow them up movies, that, you know, the action movies, right? And, and, and you know, the, the, whoever the, you know, the, the main actor is, the, the, the main hero of, of the Western or of the action film, and, 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 you know, these are always very predictable, right? You know, they're, they're, it always culminates in this final battle, whether it's Luke Skywalker flying his X-wing back and the Death Star's blowing up in the background or, or whatever it is, right? There's always this final battle in these action movies, these westerns, and, and you see, you know, the dust on the horizon and... Right? Here he comes out of the dust, right? He, he's defeated the enemy. He, he's, he's, he's declaring himself victor. He's coming out of the battle, right? And that's the picture here. That's not George Lucas. That's Isaiah. 
He was the one that came up with this. So here he comes, this, this agent, this victor. The, he's coming out of the dust. He's coming from enemy territory. He's alive. He's victorious. And as we get a little bit closer, we see something about his garments that make us pause. Look at verse 2. Isaiah asks the question, okay? So, so Isaiah is speaking. Who is the one that comes, right? And uh, marching in the greatness of his strength. And now the agent, right? The one who's coming. The, the, the victor, God, God's, God's servant, God's anointed one answers, okay? Here, here's the answer of the guy coming in. He speaks in righteousness. He is mighty to save. So, so the victor answers, it is I. I speak in righteousness. I am mighty to save. And so now we hear the servant speak. We hear the agent uh, respond to Isaiah's questions about who is he. He's righteous. He's the one mighty to save. And he comes a little closer and Isaiah asks another question. Why are your clothes red? Why is your apparel red? Like those who have been stomping out grapes all day. And you remember in that day, that was, that was actually a job. You go to work at Walmart or Home Depot, or you could go stomp grapes all day, right? And that's one of the things that people actually did is they tread grapes and that made grape juice. And then from there, they would make wine or other things. And, uh, and if you've ever pictured that or seen that, you know, like fil- filmatically recreated, uh, I mean, they, they literally have this vat of, of uh, grapes and people jump in there and they're just jumping around on them and whatever clothing that they're wearing, of course, the juice of the grapes splashes up on their clothing and their clothing takes on this red stain. So Isaiah says to the, to the agent, to the anointed one, to this person coming from the battle line as the victor, he says, why are your clothes red? like one who has been treading the wine press, right? As as someone stomping out grapes, because that's what it looks like to Isaiah. He says in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the wine press? And, And again, the victor responds, I have trodden the wine press, the wine trough alone, and from the people's There was no man with me. So the anointed one, the victor says, I have been doing this alone. And we say, doing what? Look at verse 3. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. This is graphic. Stay with me. And it is their lifeblood that is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. He hasn't been stomping out grapes. He's been stomping out sinners. He's been defeating his enemies. He has wielded the sword of his vengeance and brought about the wrath of his righteousness. This is the agent. This is what Isaiah has been saying will happen over and over and over again. Justice is coming. Judgment is coming. And here we see 
the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the servant, the king coming, having defeated his enemies. And it is bloody. And I don't know about you, but this really is a little hard to take in, isn't it? You say, why is it hard to take in? Hold your place here. One of the things I want you to see in the next couple of weeks is how the end of Isaiah parallels the end of the book of Revelation. And I know what you're thinking. Isn't Malachi the last book in the Old Testament? Yes, it is. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. But Isaiah, listen to me, Isaiah is the revelation of the Old Testament. Because the book of Isaiah concludes with the end of the world, judgment and a new heavens and a new earth, just as the book of Revelation in the New Testament ends with the end of the world and judgment and a new heaven and a new earth. So if you will, Isaiah is the book of the Revelation in the Old Testament. And you'll see those parallels. That's why if you, if you just kind of open up the book of Revelation, you're going, this is cool and kind of weird. What does that mean? I don't know. You read the book of Revelation, you have that experience. It's because, in part, we do not know the Old Testament very well. You cannot understand the book of Revelation or most of the New Testament in general if you don't understand the Old Testament. Because a lot of what John is saying in the book of Revelation is stuff that has already happened in the Old Testament. It's already been told in the Old Testament. And, and you will see these parallels. Okay, So right here we see the victor, right? The, the Messiah, the anointed one coming. He's got a blood-stained garment because he has just annihilated all sinners. They're dead. And we see that same thing happen in the book of Revelation. So turn over there with me. Let's just look at a couple of pictures. And this, this is PG-13, guys, so just warning you. Uh, Revelation 14. Um, as we see this played out in John's vision, and, and I didn't plan this, Pastor Terry and I did not plan this together, but Pastor Terry is actually going to be preaching from the book of Revelation uh, this Sunday. He's going to be on the front end of the book. I'm going to show you the back end of the book here, okay? So in Revelation chapter 14, as, as we come, and we don't have time to recount everything that's happening in the book of Revelation, but, but suffice it to say, John is describing events that lead up to the end of the world and a final judgment and a new heavens and a new earth as God recreates everything for his people to enjoy forever. And as part of the judgment, as part of God bringing rep- recompense and vengeance and wrath upon his enemies, dealing with the sin and the rebellion and the evil of the world that we all, we all long to see put away. He describes a scene uh, where the reapers come in Revelation 14, picturing his judgment. Chapter 14, verse 18, Then another angel, the one who had poured over fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress 
of the wrath of God. And of course, you know, you guys see the symbology here. It's the same symbology that Isaiah uses that grapes and wine and a wine press are metaphors of people experiencing the wrath of God. Even the correlation, the red color of grape juice or wine corresponding with the red color of human blood is intentional. Look at this, verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Guys, when Jesus comes back, he comes in horrible judgment. He comes in bloody, wrathful, destructive judgment. This is, this is not, you know, Jesus is like Santa Claus and he shows up and everybody's happy. This is Jesus shows up as the worst nightmare of sinful humanity as he brings justice. And you know what? What do we do with this? This is this is what you and I deserve. When we think that our sin, that that rebellion against a holy God is no big deal. And we think, oh, God will just forgive me. That's just what he does. These verses are here as a sobering warning that God is not to be trifled with. That he is dead serious about sin and about judgment and about his law and his justice and his rules and his instructions. That if we rebel, this is our future. And I think... I think in terms of sobering us over the reality of our sin, this helps us to realize, you know, Christians talk about being saved. Saved from what? I'm not in danger. I'm an American. Everything's great, right? This is what we are saved from. The bloodbath of King Jesus when he comes in his judgment and he wields his sickle until everyone has paid the consequence for their own sin. But, but not only that, um, I don't know what you've thought about this year, politically, governmentally. seems like everybody's upset about something, right? It's just 2020, everybody's upset about something. <laughs> This is the future of our world unless people repent. 
And I think part of the reason that God is PG-13 here with some details is those are designed to motivate us to compassionate action toward our fellow man because we don't want this to happen to people. Do you? It's like we want justice, yes. We, we, want, we want the evil to be eradicated, but then it's like, wouldn't it be better for them to repent and be saved from this? What's that? Okay. I thought that was a participant, but I think that was just a living room conversation. Okay, all right. Uh, anyway, so, so that, let, let this graphic, let, let, let the, the bloodiness and, and, and the, the violent nature of the pictures that Isaiah and Revelation have given sober us about our sin. Help us to be more thankful for our redemption and let it motivate us to plead with people that need forgiveness and need a Savior. This, this is our destiny unless Jesus intervenes personally in, in his role as Savior. Uh, this day of vengeance has come, and he reminds us the acts alone. Uh, same thing happens in, in Revelation 19. You don't need to turn there, but we get the same picture. As Jesus comes... He comes on a white horse. Listen to this. And he who sits on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire on his head or many crowns or diadems. He has written on him a name which no one knows except himself. His clothed, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. We think, well, that's a reference to his death. Right? His substitutionary death. Well, it could be. But according to Revelation and according to Isaiah, it's more likely the fact that he's coming from the battle line. He's coming as a victor over his enemies, and his garments are soiled with the blood of his enemies. And that's why on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, and He comes to rule with a rod of iron, as John tells us there. Okay, but back to Isaiah. Um, these are hard verses, guys. These are—I I confess, even studying this, it's—it's—it kind of leaves you thankful, but but sober, but disturbed, but you know. And, and I think that's the point. The, the, the point is that there is there is action that ought to be taken, having read something of where humanity is going apart from the saving work of Jesus. Okay, back, to, back to 63, back to, back to Isaiah, back to chapter 63. Let's pick it up in verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. I looked, Isaiah says, actually this is the, the anointed one speaking, I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished that there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. God acts alone in his judgment to bring these things about. This is what we need a Savior for. 
And this is what those of us who are believers are saved from. And we should thank the Lord for that. And that leads us, Isaiah doesn't leave us on that uncomfortable note. He's going to end his book with a final section. We're going to start it today. We won't finish it today, but we're going to start this final section today where he envisions the new heavens and the new earth. And um, what we're going to see here are prayers for its coming and promises of its accomplishment. Okay, so we'll just look at the first section starting in Isaiah 63, verse 7. We call this the final lap of the book of Isaiah. Listen to this. The theme of these chapters is the praying people and the promising God. The somber passage of 63, 1-6 described the requital of every foe and the redemption of all the saved. What can possibly remain? Only prayer for its fulfillment and resting on the sure promises of God. That, that's Moyer. That's one of my favorite commentators. Uh, if you want a good commentary on Isaiah, this is the guy you want to get. Okay. But you see how he's saying that? Everything's been, everything's been said, and now the only thing we can do is pray for all these things to happen and to assure ourselves of the promises of God that it will. So that leads us to the watchman's prayer. Let's look at this in chapter 63, verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. Now, we have to stop and say, well, who's talking here? In verses 1 to 6, I, remember Isaiah's talking. Who, who's the victor coming from the battle line? And then he speaks. I am the one who acts alone in wrath, right? And then Isaiah says, why is his, his uh, garment stained in blood? And then the victor responds. Okay, so there's that back and forth as we come through verse 6. Now, you can't see it in your English Bible, but in Hebrew, there's a paragraph marker at the end of verse 6. So there's a new section starting in chapter 63, verse 7, which is why there's a new uh, head, heading in your note there, right, to recognize that. So in chapter 63, verse 7 now, this is Isaiah speaking again, and he's describing uh, the, the prayer for the people. Look at chapter 63, verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. And in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them out and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled. They grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. And he fought against them. So, so, so let me give you some context here, okay? Um, so we have this judgment section, verses 1 to 6. It's like, ugh. And now Isaiah is saying, we need to pray. We need to pray. So Isaiah, on behalf of the people is going to lead the people in, in a prayer of supplication to God. So that's what's happening in, in verses 7 and following. Isaiah is praying on behalf of the people. This is something the prophets often did, right? Jeremiah did it. Daniel did it. That they, they would see the sins of the people and they would pray on the people's behalf uh, for their benefit. Okay, so that's what's happening here. So let, let's pick this up. Remember in chapter 62, verse 6, the watchmen pray and they remind the people of the promised future. Remember that? We saw that? 
The watchmen are there and they're supposed to be praying on behalf of the people and reminding the people of the promises of God. So here, Isaiah gives us a little glimmer. What are they praying about? If we could eavesdrop on the prayer of the watchmen, what would we hear? And that's what we hear in verses 7 and following. Look at this with me. First of all, Isaiah reminds us of God's loving kindness. Can we just look up for a second and remember this? The only hope we have to avoid the bloody judgment that we just read about is if God is merciful and gracious to us. That's the only hope. And we're going to see as Isaiah unfolds this, there's no good works you can do. There's no penance you can do. There's no amount of money you can give to charity. There's no going out and making up for wrongs. The only way we avoid the judgment of God's great wrath that we just heard about is if God would be kind and benevolent and merciful and gracious. And he would he would choose to give us a chance to receive forgiveness. And that's what he says here. He says, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord. You guys know that word. That's chesed, right? You know that word. If you could take God's merciful compassion and his promised faithfulness to do it and glue those words together, right? His merciful compassion and his faithful reliance to do it and glue those two words together. That's chesed. That's the word here. Uh, what does your Bible say? Nasby says loving kindness. Your Bible might say steadfast love, or what, what's another version of it there? What do you got? Anybody have an ESV? Everybody's like, oh, I got to have my Bible out. Yeah, have your Bible out. <laughs> what, what does your Bible say in, in uh, 63 verse 7? <clears throat> what's that? Steadfast love, okay. Anybody have a different version? Faithful love, okay. You, you see... Faithfulness, trustworthiness, reliance, and love or mercy or compassion, right? That's what he said. And, and it, there, there's a reason. In fact, he doesn't just say it. it this verse here, it's, it's at the beginning of the verse and it's at the end of the verse designed to show us that that is our only hope. If God would show merciful, faithful compassion, right? That's our only hope there. Now, God is the Savior and the Redeemer of Israel, His people. That's what He says in verse 8. Surely these are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So He became their Savior. Verse 9, in in all their affliction, He was afflicted. We say, God was afflicted? What He's saying there is that God is sympathizing with His people. We we think back as what what Isaiah is going to do is He's going to do a little history lesson. Uh, What is... See, let's do some Bible trivia here, okay? What is the greatest act of deliverance in Israel's history up until this time in Isaiah? What's the greatest act of deliverance? Egypt, right? It's, it's the saving of the Israelites from Pharaoh and from Egypt, okay? So that's exactly where Isaiah is going to go. He's going to say God uh, was sympathizing with his people. Remember, remember when, he meets with, when God meets with Moses and, and uh, Aaron? And do you remember what he says? I have heard, what's that? Yes, I have heard the cry of my people. He doesn't say, I got a text message. I got an email, right? Yeah, some, some cold, 
you know, objective communication. He says, I've heard their cry. And I've come down to do something about it. That's God's faithful love. That's, that's His covenant. You see, that, that's what He does with His people. And that's what He's saying here. I heard that. There, and, uh, in all their affliction, He was afflicted, meaning He, He felt for His people in that way. Now, now He goes on to describe this, right? And the angel of His presence saved them in His love and in His mercy. He redeemed them and He lifted them and carried them all of the days of old. Right? That, that's a picture of that deliverance from the uh, uh, from the time of Egypt. But what happened when they got to the wilderness? Yay, we're out of Egypt. Yay, no more bondage, no more slavery. God saved us. Is that how it went? Complaining. What were you going to say, Jude? What's that? Same thing, right? Complaining and grumbling and... We don't like manna. We're sick of manna. We want something other than manna. We don't have any water. And, and oh, that we would be back in Egypt. At least we had food there. And you're going, are you out of your mind? Verse 10, but they rebelled. And they grieved his, what? Or better said, they grieved who, Right? This is one of the rare places in, in the Old Testament where we hear, we hear the Spirit a lot, but this is the what? It's the Holy Spirit. This is the title we see in the New Testament. And notice, when Israel rebelled, what was the effect on the Holy Spirit? What did your Bible say? Which means the Holy Spirit has to be a, a person. Interesting, right? Interesting. You, you, uh, he's not the force in Star Wars because you, you can't offend a force, can you? You can't grieve an emotion. You grieve a person. So we see the grieving of the Holy Spirit here. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. You say, what's he talking about here? What do we, Isaiah and the prophets, the, the people have largely rebelled, and God is doing what? He's disciplining his people. First Assyria, then Babylon. The, these nations that he's, he's brought in to bring his disciplinary judgment. Verse 11, Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, where he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock, that's a reference to the parting of the sea, Red Sea, where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness. They did not stumble as the cattle which go down to the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. It's like the people remember, hey, God saved us in the past. Maybe he'll do it again as they're in Babylon, as they're in Assyria. Maybe God will act again. They remember that God is mighty to save, right? His, his, his Holy Spirit brought them rest. And so look at verse 15 now. Isaiah then pleased for God to return and act today. Look at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation where are your zeal? And your mighty deeds, the stirring of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. Oh my goodness. You hear what he, you hear what he's saying? The, the, the poetry kind of 
muddles it. I, I, I know that. But here's what he's saying. The, the people are saying, God, you've saved us in the past. Why won't you do it now? Why, why won't you do this now? Why is not your heart stirred? Why is not your zeal and your mighty deeds acting? Look at verse 15, the end of verse 15. It seems, listen, that the stirring of God's heart and God's compassions are what? They're restrained. You ever had that happen? You get in a fight with somebody, all of a sudden, a fight, not like, you know, you're duking it out, but, you know, a relational fight, relational fight, that's what I mean, right? And all of a sudden, things aren't tender anymore. And you feel like that person that says that they love you is, is holding back their, their love, their compassion. And Israel says, God, that's what you feel like to us. It's like you're holding back your mercy. You're holding back your compassion. You showed us this in the past. Verse 16, you are our father. Through Ab- though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You are Lord are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. What did you just notice? Something just happened that doesn't happen a whole lot in the Old Testament. See if you caught it. Aiden, did you catch it? No. Caleb, did you get it? No. Do you guys get it? You got it? What's that? Redeemer. Yeah, we got we got a name here, right? Redeemer. And what's the other name we see here? Say it, Katie. Our Father. Now you say, well, that's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Right? Well, Jesus called him his Father all the time. We don't see this term used a whole lot in the Old Testament. And we see it here. As Israel feels isolated as israel feels a coldness from heaven what do they appeal to they appeal to god as their father you are a redeemer we see that so our father notice this one look at the next verse why O lord do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you Oh my, what do we do with that one? It sounds like they are blaming God, right? And and this is where we, we rub up against that black box of the Bible known as the sovereignty of God, His absolute control over all things, and human responsibility, the fact that God gives us responsibilities and holds us accountable for doing them. Say, so how can God be in control and responsible for all things, and yet we're responsible? I know, I know, it makes my head hurt too. It's, it's the black box of the Bible. But it's true. And this is the people saying to God, Why are you letting us do this, right? In your sovereignty, in your control, why are you allowing this? 
And, and this is one of those mysteries, guys, where God has to act in salvation. God has to take the initiative in mercy and grace and compassion. But people must respond to that call and that offer for mercy. They have to. Now, footnote. If you've even been remotely paying attention in the book of Isaiah, not you, but like, you know, the audience, right, the original audience, they would know that God has bent over backwards for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter saying what? If you repent, I'll give you mercy. And yet here they are doing what? Why are you letting us this happen to us, God? Like, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's all part of his plan, isn't it? So, so here, so here, here's the thing we got to take away because this this rubs a lot of believers the wrong way, and we we can get disheartened about this. Um, God is completely, sovereignly in control of all things. Every Every subatomic particle of the universe is under his care and direction. Period. And yet, he has given a moral responsibility to human beings to act according to his word, and God will hold us accountable for that. We need God to act, right? We're at his mercy for him to act, but we also respond to his offer of help, and both of those things are true. So the Israelites here are right in the sense that God is allowing this in their life. But God has also extended his hand of mercy saying, if you take my hand of mercy, I'll fix it. And as we've read in Isaiah, and Carl just alluded to it at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, that God told Isaiah up front Israel will refuse to take the merciful hand of God and receive his help. Verse 18, your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those uh, over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. So what's he saying? He's saying the destruction of the temple... The destruction of Jerusalem made it seem like God has abandoned his people forever. And that's true, right? It's, it's true that God allowed that to happen to demonstrate the coldness and the stubbornness of the hearts of his people, right? So what do we say? 64.1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is Isaiah. Isaiah is pleading with God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Tear the curtains of heaven apart if you have to and come down and help us that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by the ear nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. So what does Isaiah say? In the past, you acted. Why do you not act now? 
Why do you not bring this to an end? Why do you not come down from heaven and, and fix all of this? And Israel says, verse 5, You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. Listen to this. And we continued in them a long time. How long did Israel rebel? A long time. And you know what? You know, you know what's happening here? Maybe you've had a moment like this. You ever had a moment? You're reading God's Word. You listen to a sermon, podcast. You're praying. And you realize, I've been living in sin for a long time. It's like, it's it's, it's literally like you have this epiphany, right? All of a sudden you, you have this awareness. Look at what my life is like. And you wonder, is there hope for me? Have I sinned too long for God to take me back? That's what the Israelites are asking. Will God's mercy exceed the longevity of my sin? They're wondering that. What do you think? We continue them a long time, and shall we be saved, he says, at the end of five? For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. You hear what they're saying? They're realizing it. We realize our sin. We realize our rebellion. We realize how long we, we've, we've turned away from God. And they're saying, is there any hope for us? We're unclean. And, and this, you know, this is that verse that everybody quotes. All of our righteousness are like filthy garments, right? And uh, you may know the original is a little more graphic than that. Um, it, it has the idea of um, menstrual garment, garments here in the original. Um, things that are unclean, things that are dirty or filthy. And Isaiah says on behalf of the Israelites, that's what our best day at trying to live up to God's standards is like. Can I just can I just pull the car over for a minute and just I don't know what you think about. I, I'm, I'm like, like emotionally, this message is really weird for me because you have you know, like this huge, like graphic, bloody picture of, of of wrath and judgment of God, and now now we're learning that that our best effort at pleasing God on our own is like a filthy garment. And um, can can I just appeal to you that? There is only one hope for us 
Now, this is not just Israel, right? I mean, this, we're talking about Israel, but this, this is indicative of humanity. There is only one hope for us. And it's not that we somehow uh, uh, appeal to God before him one day. We, we saw the bloodbath that judgment's going to be. And it's not that religious ceremonies get us right with God. Israel's been doing that throughout their history. And it's not that we can somehow do enough good things that God says, okay, good enough, you're in. Because when God looks at our best days of righteousness, he sees filthy, soiled garments. So can I, can I just, I, I know you know this, and, and maybe some of you need to hear this for the first time. Our only hope to be forgiven to come into God's family, to know joy in Him, and to know the purpose that God has for our life. Our only hope is if He shows mercy to us. And we take that hand of mercy and say, Lord, You're my only hope. That's all we've got. We're all defiled and we're all sinful, according to Mr. Isaiah. They've called. They've cried out. It seems like God has hidden his face. Look at the appeal now. Listen to the appeal. Verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hands. You hear the humility there? They're realizing they are at the complete mercy of God. He's the potter, they're the clay. He can do whatever he wants. That's true. Verse 9, do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Remember, this is Isaiah praying to God, appealing for the people, right? That's that's what's going on. Isaiah is praying to God, appealing for the people. He's saying, now, Lord, you are our father. We're the clay. You're the potter. We are the work of your hands. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. No, remember our iniquity forever. Behold, look now. All of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has become burned by fire and all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? Isaiah says, Lord, please show your mercy. Look at this plea for mercy. Let's look look at it a little bit closer. It's not their works, right? We don't come to God saying, Lord, look at what I've done for you. Look at my charitable acts. Look at how great I've been at church. Look at... The money I've given, look, right? It's, it's not works because those are, in God's estimation, soiled garments. But we do appeal to God saying what? They're saying they're part of his family. They're his children, right? He's the father. They're his children. They are his people, verse 9. And notice this, in verses 10 and 11, the testimony as seen through Jerusalem has been destroyed. The, the, the plea for mercy is not, Lord, save me, help me, 
because I want it alone. It's do this so that your name and our testimony as your people will be reestablished. Why? Remember? You remember why? Because Israel was supposed to be what? They were supposed to be the light to the nations. They were supposed to be the witness to the world of who God is and his promises. And that testimony had been destroyed in God's judgment. And so the appeal is, Lord, restore that testimony by restoring Jerusalem. And so Isaiah concludes, will you restrain? Will you keep silent? Will you afflict us beyond measure? And Isaiah cups his ear toward heaven to listen for a response to his prayer. What will he hear? We'll find out next week. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this sobering picture of your judgment leading to a humble and merciful plea for your intervention in Isaiah's prayer for his people. Father, we pray that as we have seen, I think, a a humble and contrite heart demonstrated in Isaiah, that we would likewise recognize that our only hope is a humble and contrite appeal for your mercy, for you to intervene. And we thank you that those of us that live this side of the Messiah's coming we know that that mercy has been dispensed to us through the person and work of Jesus, his life and death and his resurrection, and that we we can call out to you in humble need and you will respond in mercy and compassion and loving kindness and forgiveness that you will be our Savior even as you were Israel's Savior. You will be our Redeemer even as you were Israel's Redeemer. And you will help us. Thank you that in Christ you extend your hand of mercy to sinful humanity. And we pray, Lord, that many people will respond in repentant faith. Thank you, Lord, that uh, though we deserve the winepress of your judgment, we have been given the hope and freedom and future of a merciful and gracious opportunity through the person of Jesus. Lord, might our hope and our trust always be in him and in him alone. We pray in his name. Amen.